HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Dr. David Eisenberg. He's a social visionary, and you'll hear why on this episode. And throwing all professionalism aside, I confess that he is one of my most favorite people in the world. He's a medical doctor who had a dream, a common sense one, that teaching doctors and other health professionals to cook and to understand food could change their own health and the health of their patients. And he's done just that. He's been educating thousands of medical professionals through his sold-out conferences at the CIA in Napa, and now with the expansion of his dream of building hands-on teaching kitchens in hospitals, universities, and more all around the world. It's happening. We spoke with David just a few weeks before the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative Conference at UCLA. Let's hear what he has to say. We've been friends for a long time, but what's really exciting to me about talking to you now is that you are kind of on the cusp of the full-scale realization of the vision you had when I first met you, let's say, 20 years ago. And that is pretty exciting. So now, in just a couple of weeks, you're going to have this whole huge conflagration, this whole conference of all of the teaching kitchens in the universe that you have kind of breathed into being. Tell me a little bit about that and how that feels. It's the beginning of the realization of a dream that you were part of 20 years ago. So is it worth going back 20 years to where the crazy yes. idea started from? Yes, because when people have a dream, the fact that they you had the persistence to stay with this dream with many, many challenges 
working now with multiple different personalities and organizations and institutions, it gives me hope. You've been a wonderful friend and guide along the way, so thank you. But the idea for this is really the result of, um, you know, how I was brought into this world. My father was a baker. I grew up in Long Island in the 1960s and uh, went to the bakery with my dad as a kid because that's when I could see him. He left at four in the morning and came home at eight at night. So if I didn't spend Saturday and Sundays watching him decorate cakes and make thousands of people in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn happy, I never would have known the guy. (laughs) And uh, as I've mentioned to you, he was an artist. He was uh, a funny guy who everybody loved. And he smelled like a combination of cinnamon sticks and Old Spice. And I loved him. And I learned to cook and bake, and the joy of making food for other people was, you know, either genetically in me or it was environmentally brought out of me. So by the time I was 10, I loved to cook and bake. Unfortunately, when I was 10, he died of a heart attack. And my three grandparents died within a year of his passing. And as was the custom, nobody talked about any of the deaths as if that would protect the children from the pain. And my three siblings and I never understood why everybody died suddenly of unrelated diseases. In my own case, at age 10, I wanted to go to medical school to understand what had happened. And then history and world politics got in the way. Uh, Teaching kitchens as they are now and probably will be for the next 50 or 100 years are really a result of a curious twist of fate. Nixon was opening up China in the early 70s, and he sent Henry Kissinger to Beijing. And the New York Times sent its op-ed editor, James Reston, to figure out what is Henry Kissinger doing in Beijing at the height of the breakdown of communications between China and the United States. The year is 1971. James Reston, in Beijing, trying to figure out what Henry Kissinger is doing, develops appendicitis. He's operated on by... Chinese doctors who learned from American physicians from Yale, Harvard, and Columbia how to be doctors in the 40s. They take out his appendix, and two days later, he still has post-operative pain. And they bring in somebody called an acupuncturist. And James Rustin writes the story of the obituary to his appendix on the front page of the New York Times (laughs) in July 1971. It's a tongue-in-cheek article also about what Henry Kissinger was doing, trying to create the rapprochement with China. But when he says, I had pain for two days, they put a skinny needle in my knee and my elbow, and the pain was evaporated in seconds. You know, to a pre-med student about to go to Harvard College, it was like the pathophysiologic shot heard around the world. That's (laughs) impossible. How is that happening? So when I entered Harvard College in the early 70s, this was the height of the Vietnam War. It was a crazy time. Students were taking over the president's office at Harvard College. And I said, can I do an independent study on acupuncture in Chinese medicine? And my advisor said, sure, knock yourself out. (laughs) There was nothing in the library about acupuncture in English, but the textbooks of Asian medicine all derive from one book, The Yellow Emperor's Canon of Internal Medicine. 
The Yellow Emperor is the legendary first emperor of China. The book is at least 23 centuries old. And it said two things in the first chapter. It said, prevention is always superior to intervention. And it said the way we eat and move and control our thoughts impacts our health and determines our recuperative capacity. That was wild. In 1971, at Harvard College, in the Department of Biology, and among all my pre-med instructors, nobody was thinking in those directions. I have one question. How did you read this book? Did you already know Chinese? Could you? No, I was going to fail my independent study unless I produced a paper. It was the only book that was in English that mentioned acupuncture. <laughs> so I distilled the message of the Yellow Emperor and said, this is what I've learned of Chinese medicine, and someday we'll figure out more about <laughs> acupuncture. And they gave me credit. But it changed my life because I wondered, what if that's true? What if the way we eat, move, and think impacts everything? And think about it. It was... 50 years before lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, the notion that diet matters, that exercise matters, that psychoneuroimmunology is a thing. The Chinese had it all right, but it was kind of in the clouds. So fast forward eight years. During my pre-med years in college, I studied Chinese while I was pre-med, and I did other things as well, but that's the benefit of a great liberal arts education. You can do crazy things when you're 17. And by the time I was at medical school, President Carter normalized relations with China. And by the time I was entering my senior year at Harvard Medical School in 1978-79, the Dean of Students, Dan Fetterman, called me in and said, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences wants to send the first 10 Americans to China since 1949. You should apply. So I did. <laughs> and I was sent by the National Academy of Sciences so for incredible. 13 months. <laughs> Me and nine other Americans, most of them Jews from New York, <laughs> you know, lawyers, architects, anthropologists, <laughs> agrarian scholars, they all, with the exception of me, had two PhDs one in Chinese studies and one in their field of choice. I had two years of Chinese at college and was about to earn a medical degree, and I slipped in there. <laughs> but, you know, in 1979, there were probably fewer than two dozen Caucasians in the whole country. And this was my introduction to Chinese medicine, and I would go on to spend the first quarter of a century of my career looking at herbs, acupuncture, mind-body, tai chi, the connection between these things and health and disease. Academically, I finished my training in medicine, my internal medicine board exams, my research fellowships, and I wanted to study those things. But this was all the prequel to the teaching kitchens. I know, I know. As I was beginning to study herbs and acupuncture and help the National Institutes of Health rigorously evaluate what works, what doesn't work, what is placebo, how do these things work. And in 1979, this was all alien stuff. 
this was truly alternative, non-conventional ways of thinking of health, healing, and therapy. But as I got grants, and as I was promoted academically and became the chief of a division at Harvard to study complementary and integrative medicine, I paused and I said, you know, there's something I want to do beyond this. And rationally, it was to address this enormous hole that I saw, that no doctor knew anything about nutrition, and even fewer knew anything about food or cooking. And I thought that was absurd. Well, when were they going to learn? When do people who go into medicine have a chance to do anything other than organize themselves to get into medical school and get through medical school? Right. And medical school in the West for the last hundred years didn't have courses required in nutrition. And nobody talked about cooking or food. It was as if it was the forgotten domain. But I thought that's a dereliction of duty. How do you advise people about health? I mean, my father dropped dead of a heart attack at 39. In hindsight, sidebar, I'm now in the Department of Nutrition. I work with arguably the leading scholar of nutrition science on earth, Walter Willett. <clears throat> you know, when I met him 35, 40 years ago, and he and I began to explore what we could do together, he asked me if my father ran a kosher bakery, which he did. He asked me if my father used shortening because it was a kosher bakery and they couldn't use butter or cream or milk. He did. And my colleague Walter said, your father probably died because he used trans fats and ate trans fats every evening for dinner for his 39 years of life. Amazing. Anyway, Amazing. we digress. So <laughs> uh, I, I decided I wanted to start a conference for doctors and dietitians and health professionals where they could learn what's the science of what you should eat more of or less of and why. That's the nutrition part. I asked Walter Willett to be my expert, to bring the top scientists in the world to say, this is what we know about foods that are healthy, unhealthy, and toxic. And then I wanted the top chefs in the country who could translate that nutrition science into easy to make, affordable, delicious foods. Because if it's not delicious, nobody's gonna pay any attention. And I'm all about deliciousness. And I love to cook. So this was my way of saying, I, you know, I'm a chef wannabe. Let me go to the top <laughs> chef cooking school and ask them to join with the top nutrition scientists. And then there's me as a doc saying, the nutrition and the cooking piece is one leg of a three-legged stool. Going back to the Yellow Emperor's dictum, that's the eat part. But then there's the move part. So we brought in experts on the importance of movement and exercise. And then there's the mental part. So I always brought in experts on behavior change, health coaching, motivational interviewing. How do you help people tweak or change their behaviors when they have fallen into a lifetime of bad habits? And we put this together into a conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And when I first proposed it to the Harvard faculty, and I was on the continuing education committee, it was almost hysterical because it was a preposterous idea. I said, okay, I'd like to provide credit to doctors and all health professionals to learn about nutrition and cooking and exercise and behavior change. 
and I had to then leave the room when they voted, even though I'm a member of the committee, I had to recuse myself. And they brought me back in. I don't think I've ever told anybody this story. And they said, the vote is unanimous. We will approve it under one condition. The chairman of the committee gets to speak at your conference and eat all that food. <laughs> hey. And that's what happened. <clears throat> and you were off to the racers at the Culinary Institute of America in the Napa but, Valley. And every year, hundreds and hundreds of doctors would come and the waiting list would... Right. You were sold out almost as soon as the dates were announced. Right. It's been sold out 18 consecutive times. And over three days, mainly physicians, but also registered dietitians and other health professionals come. They hear the science. They taste 325 different dishes over three days made by an army of chefs and student chefs. And they also learn about exercise and mindfulness and behavior change. But there's one other thing. They go into the kitchens and we show them they can cook it themselves. The experiential piece is what differentiates that conference from any other in the country or the world. To have surgeons who've operated on thousands of chests but have never held a kitchen knife be shown that they can make a gourmet vegetarian or salad, or soup, or whole grain menu recipe banquet, and do it in 20 minutes, and then watch them do it, take pictures of it, taste it, and call home and say, honey, you won't believe what I just made. These people are changed forever. I still get love letters from clinicians who've gone through these conferences telling me 5, 10, and 20 years later, you changed my life. You've changed the life of my family, and you've changed the way I think about food for my patients. So that conference was going on for about 10 years when I realized, you know, it won't be enough if I just help doctors learn what they should eat more of and how to cook it. We have to make this available to patients and ultimately to kids in schools and ultimately to employees and work sites. And we'll be back with David Eisenberg to hear how he stayed true to his dream and built a network of teaching kitchens around the country. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. 
Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Dr. David Eisenberg. I realized it won't be enough if I just help doctors learn what they should eat more of and how to cook it. We have to make this available to patients and ultimately to kids in schools and ultimately to employees and work sites. So then the question was, could we distill what we were teaching to health professionals into a curriculum for patients? So we took that information, we distilled it into a 16-week curriculum, and we piloted it on employees of the Culinary Institute of America. Two groups of 20 employees who were not chefs, the people that ran the kitchens and ran the grounds and did the administration, all of whom wanted to learn to eat, cook, move, and think better. And they volunteered without any hesitation they came 16 weeks in a row for two and a half hours on a Thursday night. And they watched the chefs demonstrate the technique of the week. Make a soup, make a whole grain, sear a protein, fill in the blank. They tasted the food. They learned how to read labels. They learned how to be thoughtful, informed shoppers. And they learned how to move more and think better in terms of changing their motivations about what they wanted to be if they learned to cook and eat and move better. Every other Saturday, they cooked with the chef educators for four hours. So at the end of 16 weeks, we reassessed them. They lost weight, their cholesterol came down, their blood sugars were better. But even more than the information we got from these 40 people, they were changed. They said, we've been on diets our whole lives. We are now liberated. We now have our own internal navigational skills to know what to eat, how to cook it, how to live a better life. Thank you. So I knew from that experience that this thing had legs. The next breakthrough was in part that in reviewing the medical literature, there were two other large groups who had done almost identical studies, one at McGill University and one at Cleveland Clinic. But these were on patients, not employees, and they worked as well. And then it occurred to me, what if the people at Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, who by that time were in the thousands, what if I asked the ones that were coming back after two or three years for a refresher, if any of them had done what I had fantasized about 10 years earlier, had any of them built a kitchen in a hospital? And in 2015, at the encouragement of one of my colleagues, I asked the audience, have any of you been crazy enough to build or use a kitchen in your hospitals to treat patients? And a hundred hands stayed up. And that was the birth of the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative. Because I realized this was an idea whose time had come. This wasn't just me fantasizing in 1979 how to translate the Yellow Emperor's dictum of how to optimize well-being. There were a hundred people in dozens of hospitals teaching people to eat, cook, move, and think better. So I shifted what I was doing. I said, I'm going to create a teaching kitchen collaborative and bring together these 
other crazy people who realize that what we're all trying to do is help people make better choices to optimize their own self-care. We invited 26 hospitals and health and corporations and community centers with teaching kitchens to begin the collaborative in 2015. It now has 45 members, mainly in the United States, but also Canada, Japan, Germany, Italy, and many other countries now being interested in joining. And we've started to do research individually and collectively. We've started to create best practices. And in October, we'll have the third international research conference, bringing together people working in these teaching kitchens around the world to say, what are we learning? What is working? How can we make them better? And how can we prove that if you could scale these in hospitals and schools and work sites, you could help millions of people change their behaviors, change their clinical outcomes, and reduce their costs. And as an aside, in helping people change what they eat, we can also do our part to save the planet before it burns up. Ha, David, I hardly know what to say. It's so amazing. So well, amazing. you can't make this stuff up. It's like, <laughs> I that's know, the story. I, I know. mean, you watch the whole thing. <laughs> I know. That's what's so exciting for me. I've been in the kitchen at the CIA with those doctors who were giddy. This was so yes. much fun. Look at me. I'm cutting peppers. You know, <laughs> Just, your perseverance. And the, the other thing besides your perseverance was though they tried to kill it out of you, you never lost the joy. No, it's, it's a joyful activity. And the other crazy people working on this with me, you know, there are now literally hundreds of chefs and dietitians and medical researchers and exercise trainers and behavioral change experts who all have this. They all think we are onto something that cannot fail, that must be evaluated, showcased, and scaled, that it will work and make everyone's life better. So anyone who participates you know, drinks the Kool-Aid and feels like, now I'm with my people. So it, it's a fun activity. It's always been. But here's what's coming. So I told you this was a cockamamie idea from the 70s. But listen to the lineup of keynote speakers, October. And if you're listening to my voice, it's tkresearchconference.org if you want to look at the website. This conference is going to happen at UCLA. Next week, UCLA will open its $3 million teaching kitchen. This kitchen will be used by the undergraduates who will learn to eat, cook, move, and think better, a quarter of whom are food insecure throughout the University of California. It will be used by graduate students in nutrition and physiology and genetics and people studying the microbiome to see how the impact of food choices changes their genetics and their biology. It will be used by medical students to learn how to advise patients about food and nutrition. It'll be used by hospital researchers to figure out how we help people with obesity, diabetes, prediabetes, live healthier, better lives. And it will be used by employees of the hospitals and the university, thereby improving their lives, their health, and reducing the costs to the university. And here's the kicker for UCLA. It wasn't built by any of those groups. It was built by the head of dining services. Why? Because he feeds 50,000 students a day, three meals a day from scratch, 
and he was running out of cooks. So he built it as a cooking school in the middle of a campus so he could have cooks. And the genius of this is once we introduced everybody to everyone else, they realized what a gem we have. It's a shared asset of an entire community. So now I begin to think of teaching kitchens as just shared assets, as shared laboratories to teach people and do research and save money. So the speakers there, the head of nutrition research across the entire National Institutes of Health is going to talk about teaching kitchens as part of a multi-billion dollar push to understand precision nutrition. The head of primary care at Harvard's Mass General Hospital is going to talk about teaching kitchens as places to educate and train the next generation of primary care doctors. One of the vice presidents of an insurance company, Adventist Health, Dexter Sherney, is going to give the business case for how teaching kitchens could pay for themselves, save money, and generate money by taking care of patients, by being used as research laboratories, by doing shared medical appointments, and on and on and on. There's another speaker who's going to talk about teaching kitchens to address vulnerable populations and health equity issues, because that's probably job number one. How do we teach people who, through no fault of their own, don't know another way to feed themselves and their families healthier foods because they think the only option open to them is fast food and processed food. How do we use these teaching kitchens to break those patterns? And there'll be a discussion by the heads of the entire community of lifestyle medicine, the entire community of so-called complementary and integrative medicine, and the entire community of culinary medicine, who will say, what if all these thousands of health professionals worked as a united front as opposed to three separate groups who are all trying to promote health and well-being? And what if we realize that teaching kitchens become this pluripotent classroom where you could teach anybody these things for any purpose, but they're valuable new ways of training the next generation to live healthier lives? I'm so excited about that conference. I am if anybody's too. still listening to me babble, go to <laughs> tkresearchconference.org and tell your doctor, tell your friend, tell your chef, go to this conference because it's going to be a party. I'm coming. I want to come. You can go in person for two days, but you can also register virtually. We're going to also do it online. And you can watch it live or you can watch it asynchronously the next month. Yeah, but so, you don't get to eat the food if you do it virtually. That's the downside. <laughs> and you don't get to meet the people, all of whom are really lovely people. Wow. It's been such an honor to watch you on this journey, really. And the way I look at it, you've essentially mm. been at the center of two huge revolutions. And you've been the visionary at the center of two revolutions. First, the idea that we should look at alternative medicine, that we should look at Chinese, Ayurvedic, every other thing, that something that's been around for 24,000 years would have something to tell us. So that was one major revolution that you were really, you were really at the spearhead. I first met you at a conference that, were, that you were convening on that many years ago. And this, the whole idea, which is such a simple idea when you think about it, duh, like many ideas after the fact, that food matters. 
that this huge amount of substance that you're putting in your body has something to do with how your body and how your life and how your your future will evolve. And so I really credit you with being one of the great visionaries of this century. I say that with all my heart. It's what the, the common theme of the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative says it all. What can we do together that we can't do as well individually? And that was true for, you know, conventional and unconventional medicine learning from one another. It's true for members of a teaching kitchen learning from and with each other. Together we can do so much more. And when you think about breakthroughs, it's usually when people from different disciplines share what they know and say, what if we did that better together? And that's what this is about. Thank you for the compliment. I'm going to end it here, but I hope our conversations never end. I hope so, too. Thank you, David. And listeners, if you want to know more about the Teaching Kitchen Collaborative and the conference, visit their website, teachingkitchens.org. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss, of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 